0: Morning. Well, I am always grateful when Jamie will entrust the pulpit to me one more time. <laughs> you never know. You never know if I get another shot at you. But you know, we say Happy New Year, which means, um, boy, we're hoping it's a better one. <laughs> but then you wonder, what do you, what do we mean by that? I want a better year. Well, I want a new year with new good year stuff. But then there's that thing, that thing that happens year after year. You go, what thing? That thing your folks talked to you about when you were little kids. That thing that you talk about to your kids when they were kids. And that thing is basically, you know son, life isn't fair even though there's everything in our fiber that we hope and wish it would be, but here's the news. Next year, this year, there's not gonna be any more fair than last year. So how do you respond to this thing? God's placed within each and every one of us this deep desire for fairness. It's called justice. You've all experienced it. We were little kids waiting patiently in line in cafeteria. Then that bully, that bully cuts right in front of you. It's bigger than you, can't do anything about it. And at that point, it bothers you. I mean, we, we, we get ticked if the cruel sisters of Cinderella got the prince, we would be angry. We don't like it when bad guys win. And yet, we even find today that that bully grows up same guy. Matter of fact, when we're on the freeway in there, because of road work, they're cutting the lanes down into two lanes to one. There he is again. That same guy. He's grown up. He flies on the side of the road and he cuts in again. And we pray for him God, take him home. Now. Because it's not fair. You know, in anthropological studies, they have found, even in primitive tribes, it seems like in every human being, God has emplaced a a, a moral law, a sense of fair. Some things are right, some things are wrong. Some things are always right, some things are always wrong. The biblical term is justice. It's what brought C.S. Lewis to Christ celebrated atheists out of Oxford, and but finally brought him to believe in God and then into his son, Jesus Christ, was he could not shake the reality that God has done what the apostle Paul said he did in Romans 1, that when men suppress the truth in unrighteousness, God made it evident within each and every one that he is, because he placed this sense of justice this deep desire for fairness, this deep desire for some things are right, some things are wrong, and it bothers us when the wrong guys win. And that's why C.S. Lewis realized there is someone, a moral lawgiver, who placed it there. But why would he do that when he knows that we live in a world that we just don't seem to see it? Well, Solomon wanted to deal with this, wisest man who ever lived, I mean, he's given the double portion of wisdom. The guy lives out at every fantasy you ever had. The guy's the king of Israel at the time. No one pushes him around. He's got all the gold and silver that he doesn't need anything more. His fame, Queen of Sheba wants to check him out. And so this guy writes a personal journal. And as he's observed life, because he's somewhat of a trust fund baby, his dad did all the hard work. David was a warrior. He built the kingdom up. Solomon had 40 years just to sing songs, write poetry, and think about it. The point being is he writes this journal. And this journal is what we call the book of Ecclesiastes. And he deals with this thing because he lost sleep over this issue. Why is life, year after year, always seem to be not fair? And if that be the case, how do you navigate it? How do you navigate a life in a world that's not fair? So in chapter three, he makes a statement in the very beginning of the chapter, verse one. There is an appointed time for everything. And there is a time for every event, every event under heaven. Then he picks it up in verse 11. He, God, has made everything appropriate in its time. That, That word appropriate, yafar, And the Hebrew speaks of something that you're not a fearful of it from being beautiful. So God somehow has made everything appropriate, beautiful in its time, in its right time. He's also said eternity in their hearts. What's that? The word is olam. It means God's placed within each and every one of us this deep desire to know how it all is going to end. Like we've talked about before, God has a plan for every one of us. Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this very thing. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it. A good work will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Our problem is sometimes this plan doesn't seem to be working out our way because of a world that's unfair. But he places Olam, eternity in our hearts, so it bothers us. We want to know how this thing ends yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. He says, you're not going to get a shot, not in this life, to understand it all. I know that there's nothing better for them, he says, than to rejoice, to do good in one's lifetime. Well, how do I do that when there's so many things around me that do not seem to be very good? Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good, in all his labor. It's a gift of God. But I tend to get a little distracted from the gift of God because of all the unfairness I see around me. He says, I know that everything God does will remain forever. And there's nothing to add to it and there's nothing to take from it. He's doing it right. For God has so worked that men should fear him. He's doing it this way so that we learn how to fear him. That which is and has been already, and that which will be has already been. For God seeks what has passed by. So what's going on here? What is Solomon with all his wisdom telling us? He says, we can't always make sense out of the appointed times. It doesn't always seem to make sense to us. Because we don't know how it all ends. It seems to be unfair. But maybe it feels and seems to be unfair because it is unfair. And it's psychologically theologically pretend it isn't. Oh, why why would you want to do that? When does fantasy and deception become reality? We need to deal with truth here and be wise. So he continues in verses 16, 17 of chapter three. Furthermore, I've seen under the sun That's our mortal life from birth to physical death. This first shot at living for us in this mortal life. You're going to see that in the place of justice, there's wickedness. In the place of righteousness, there's wickedness. So Solomon says, I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time and for every matter and for every deed is there. Now interesting what he says here is, in this life we've got a problem. We find both justice and unrighteousness, I should say righteousness bent. Notice the word wickedness, where I expect to find the place of righteousness, that'd be from government to do the right thing. The place I expect to see justice, the judicial system, I expect they would do the right thing, decide the right thing. But he says, I see wickedness. The Hebrew word is resha. It means bent. It's bent. Why is it bent? So that justice is injustice and righteousness seems to be unrighteous. God creates the good and then he gives us a free choice to enjoy it. But what do we do with the free choice? We bend. We bend the righteousness It's unrighteousness. And we human beings, we bend the justice to injustice. See, God did not create evil. The same way light doesn't produce darkness. You go ahead and you uh, remove the light, you have the darkness. God creates the light. And we choose to bend it and to create this darkness for the world that we live in. So you would expect that I would see in our judicial system, justice, and I don't, not always. I look at my government, no matter what party you participate in, it still doesn't seem to work perfectly. But when the point is, when man rules this world, catch it? When man rules the judicial system, when man rules the government, when man rules this world, he doesn't make for a very good God. That's the deal. He doesn't make for a very good God. Solomon's not being negative here. He's just asking hard questions. He's being honest. Our problem with when we see appropriate times of events and things in our life, our problem seems to be a timing issue. Injustice exists in our world. Unrighteousness exists in our world. We live not in a fair place. And why does this take place? Remember what he said back in verse 17? So that we would learn, I said to myself, God's gonna judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time and for every matter. In other words, God says, I will unbend it all. But why are you letting it be bent now? Because God, are you exposing something? And he is exposing something. There's a reason for unfairness. There's a reason we see that when man rules as a God, whether it be over government or over judicial system, we're gonna see that it's always gonna be bent. And it's the purpose is so that we learn one thing. What happens when we play God in our own lives and the lives of others? When we think we can rule the universe. So he says in verses 18 through 20, I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see, to see what? To expose what? That they are but beasts. The, the, the Hebrew word is cattle. This doesn't seem too encouraging. For the faith of the sons of men and the faith of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. In need, they all have the same breath and there is no advantage for man over beast for all is Havel. They all go to the same place. All came from the dust, all returned to the dust. You know, people read this and go, this is horrible. He says, I am but dust. What he's saying is this. Yes, in Genesis 2, 7, God breathed into the human being. And we became a living nephesh, but we did not become a living God. And there's our confusion. He says, just like, why would you think you have the right to rule your life or the life of anyone else's, when you're nothing more than the same origin as a cattle? You will live, you will breathe, they'll put you in a hole. The flower will grow, the cow will eat the flower. You eat the cow, you live, you die, they put you in a hole. (laughs) You feed the flower, cow eats the flower. We eat the cow, we live, we die, they put us in a hole. The fact is, what makes you think you have visions of self-divinity? That's what he's talking about here. The context is not about your worth, your worth to him. You're precious in his sight. The context is when you believe that you're the center of the universe and you have the moral right to rule your life and the life of others as a God. So he says, all go to the same place. All came from dust. All will return to the dust. The irony is that we humans, we do get angry when we're not treated as gods. I, uh we if we hide it. We just save ourselves. But How do you feel when people do not treat you with respect? People do not treat you the way and recognize who you are and treat you the way you should be treated. Bugs you, doesn't it? How do you feel when things don't go your way? People aren't cooperating and your will's not being done on earth as it is in heaven. (laughs) Ticks you off. And we don't want to admit it, but the reason we're getting angry is simply one point. We're not being treated as a God. It is the fallen nature. It is our flesh. And therefore, we don't like it when we, because those are perks of divinity. Remember the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May you be recognized and treated with respect and honor. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But I want that for myself. Now we, we are humble Christians, and so no, I don't play God in other people's lives. No, I only play God on my own life, because I want to control things. I want my life to be right. I want things in my life to be right. I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that everything in my life is fair and right. We are not gods. We're not qualified to be gods. We die like cattle. And he says back in verse 14, why? I know that everything God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it. There's nothing to take away from it. Why? For God so worked that men should fear him. What does it mean to fear God? We got to understand that God's grace and his mercy and his love for us Has not weakened God. In Romans chapter 1, at the very, very, very end, hard verse. Says, do not pay evil back for evil. As much as lies within you, be at peace with all men. And then he says, Vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. I will repay. Oh, come on, Lord, you're taking from us the most fun part of everything. (laughs) Vengeance is sweet if it's in the name of Jesus, of course. And yet it is the greatest test of your faith that you believe there's a God and you believe God is who God is and will do what he promises to do. And then when there's unfairness, injustice, unrighteousness, and you are brought into your life, that can you step aside and say, God, this is yours. What do I do? If my enemy is hungry, I give him food. Thursday, I give them to drink, but I'm not going to be overcome by evil, but I'll overcome evil with what? Good. Yeah, that's in the Bible. That's Romans chapter one, the last paragraph. What a test of my theism. Do I believe there's a God and not only that God is engaged and will do what he promises, how do I know he's gonna pull that off? Maybe he's been weakened. He's been loving for so long, he's just too loving to do anything about the unfairness in life. Where would you come up with that? I've shared before Exodus 2020, 20. I call it 2020 vision. Remember, this is where Moses is coming down with the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and they kind of come along, Mount Sinai is filled with thunder and fire and lightning. People are scared to death. They're wetting their tunics. And they say, you know, God, you don't have God speak to us. Have, the people, have Moses, you talk to us. And that's when God speaks through Moses and says, fear not, yare, fear not. For I did all these things that the fear of God rest upon you. Now, if you're looking for a contradiction in the Bible, how about in the same pick and verse? Because he literally says, it's the same word, yare, fear not but I did the lightning and the thunder. I did all this so that the fear of God, Yahweh, will rest upon you. What is that? It's called respect. It's called reverence. See, the fear of God is when I remember who God is and what God can do. Fearing God is having some 280-pound football player come running after me, his eyes glaring and his teeth exposed. And he, I know he can crush every bone in my body. And he comes up to me and I'm just scared to death. And he grabs me and he hugs me and smiles and says, I'm here to love you and I'll never hurt you. Well, after wetting my tunic, that's when I kind of have this response of, but you know what remains after that? Respect, reverence, because I know what he can do. I know what he can do to me and I know what he could do to anybody because he can do whatever he wants. Therefore, to fear God is actually it takes a greater fear to cast out a lesser fear. And that's why I don't have to fear the unfairness of you or the unfairness of anybody in my life because my God has promised he'll deal with it. He'll deal with it. As a matter of fact, how does he close this journal. I mean, here's again, smartest guy ever lived. Most advantaged person ever lived. And he finishes his diary, his personal journal with these two verses. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, 14. The conclusion. Now I would like to know what this guy concludes at the end of his journal. When all has been heard, guess what? Fear God. Keep his commandments because this applies to every person. But how can I do that? Why would I do that? Last verse. For God will bring every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether it be good or evil. Everything that is good. But it seemed like it was punished or ignored. He will reward. Everything that is evil, that is so unjust, so unrighteous, so unfair, he's promised. He'll unbend it. He'll bring Jesus judgment upon it. And my greater fear of him cast out all fear. Of unfairness in my life. See, we struggle with the reality that we're not created to be the center of our own universe. Beloved, we're not capable of assuming the role of final reference point of what is right and what is wrong. So why do we naturally replace God with ourselves and take responsibility, to think we've got to straighten out everything that's unfair? Michael Novak, a professor at Stanford University, made this observation, and I quote, it is taken for granted in most intellectual circles that an intelligent person does not believe in God, and certainly not in any institutional religion. Novak goes on to say, indifference to religion is the ordinary mark of the serious intellectual. Indeed, The thesis of the intellectual life in America is that there is not God. What I want to know is why is denial and replacement of God with myself so intelligent? If indeed it proves simply one thing, if man is the apex of all evolutionary process, therefore accountable to no one, answerable to no one, for he thinks himself to be a God, then he authors all unfairness in this world. And all the unfairness you and I see around us, injustice exists because it comes from the heart of man, not from the heart of God. Never did, never will, yet he sends to be blamed for it. But he permits it. How else could he expose the origin of it? Man himself. The breath of life is given to us like all animals, but that breath did not make us deity. Solomon picks this up again later in chapter eight because he actually would lose sleep over this. Here's the wisest man trying to resolve it, trying to understand it. And he loses sleep in his attempt. And then here's his conclusion in chapter eight of Ecclesiastes, verse 14. There's a futility, a havel is the Hebrew word, a vaporous thing that I can't get my head around. I can't see and resolve it and understand it, which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. There's good people that seem like they get punished for it. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And there's evil guys, and they seem to be blessed by God. I say, this is Havel. Now watch what he commends. So, therefore, I commend pleasure. What? I commend pleasure. Pleasure. For there's nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat, to drink, to be merry. And this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. Are you kidding me? This is how I respond to all the unfairness around me? When I gave my heart to know wisdom, Solomon says, to see the task which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, Like I said, he lost sleep over this thing and I saw every work of God and I concluded. Listen to what he concludes. That man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I'm gonna know, he cannot discover. You know what he's saying there? If you wait to understand it all, the unfairness in your life, if you wait to resolve it all, all the unfairness in your life, then you're gonna miss it all. You're gonna miss it all. See, the point is, this mystery of unfairness around me Am I gonna let it distract me from the gift of life God has given me? Question then is, what will I let distract me or rob me from the gifts of life that God has given me this year to enjoy, to take pleasure in? Enjoy the things you do understand. Stand by your trust that God will sovereignly keep his promise to deal with all that you don't understand. Interesting verse in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Apostle Paul, apparently many people asked him, could you summarize the will of God? Well, the Bible's the will of God. Got all this is the will of God. But Paul, can you you basically just give us one thing that we could get our heads around that we know is the will of God? And he writes 1 Thessalonians 5.18. He says, In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ concerning you. If you wait to understand it all, resolve it all, you're gonna miss it all. I I, I close with a riddle that I shared some years ago. What is it that God has never seen? Great men and women have seen it from time to time. You and I see it every day. What is it that God has never seen? Great men and women see from time to time, but you and I see it every day. It's a riddle that comes answered by Isaiah himself in Isaiah 40, begins in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span, calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, weighed the mountains in balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or as his counselor informed him? With whom did he consult? And who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding. God has never seen his equal. Great men and women see their equal from time to time. You and I see our equal every day. The world isn't fair around us. I love it. it's not going to be more fair in this next year than last year. But it can be a better year for you. See, when my world's not fair and I get hit with it, I remember that promise. Promise, I memorized it so long ago that it seems like it's emptied itself of meaning. But it's still the promise Romans eight twenty eight. God works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. The promise is God will take everything and every mess you create and he'll pull good out of it according to his purpose and his plan for you. And not only that, the promise is that God will take every, he will pull out of every mess everybody else creates for you. Whether it be national, global, local, in your home. The sovereign intelligence of God will pull good out of that mess. Good for his purpose for you. And so my response, and I'll just say it out loud, I'll wait and not be distracted by the injustice and the unrighteous around me. But I will spot and embrace those blessings of God, those divine appointments that God brings into my life. Jesus said, trust me. I have it under control. But do you really believe God's going to keep his promise? That he'll reward all that has been so unfairly overlooked? That he'll bring judgment against all that unfairness in this world? Oh yeah, it's called the second Christmas. Second Christmas is mentioned over 300 times in the New Testament alone. One out of every 25 verses in the New Testament talks about the second Christmas. Every New Testament writer talks about the next Christmas, the second Christmas. First time he came, his meek and mild child in a manger to bring God's grace and mercy and love that we interpret it weakens him. But the reality at his second coming, we call it the second advent, he will come, not in a manger. He will come from the clouds and he'll make good his promises. Therefore, beloved, why be distracted by that which he will take care of? And when it hits you in the face, I'll wait for the appointed time when God will make all things beautiful. Nothing to be feared. I can navigate this fallen world when I'm not distracted by it, when I'm embracing all of it that God brings to my life, can you do that? It's called fearing God. And if you're going to make a resolution this year, I think that's a good one. This year, I will fear God, for the greater fear will cast out all lesser fears. And that's what joy is all about. The absence of being afraid. You want to be light in the darkness of this world? Just don't be fearful. And you'll shine. And you will draw people out of darkness to want to know why you are not fearful. And that's getting real. That's getting God. And that's getting out there and having an influence. Heavenly Fathers, we prepare now for communion, which is such a celebration you've left us that we would always be remembering that you kept your promise. You would be with us, with us, until the end of the age. As you call us your own because God so loved us that he sent you, gave his only begotten son, and those of us who have embraced and believed who he is, and you cause us to recognize what he's done for us, Lord, that the wrath, your wrath against unfairness, injustice, unrighteousness, was all poured on him, on that cross, in our place. And God, you raised him on the third day. And he's alive forevermore in his presence is with us, and that is he being the firstborn among many sons that one day we might hear, what he heard twice. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. May we honor you this year as father. This we ask in the name of Jesus Christ.